Welcome to the Veterinary Success Podcast. I'm your host, Isaiah Douglas. Today, I'm joined by Paul Diaz, who's the founder and principal consultant at Higher Power Consulting. Before we jump into Paul's bio and get into the show, we're going to take a quick break, hear from the show sponsors, and be right back. If you're struggling to attract new staff or your team is experiencing burnout, pick up your phone and call Guardian Vets. Through virtual team solutions like after-hour triage, daytime virtual receptionists, callbacks, and telemedicine, Guardian Vets can help you have happy staff, happy clients, and a thriving business. Go to www.guardianvets.com and check Veterinary Success Podcast in the Where Did You Hear About Us section to get a free consultation and receive 50% off your first month of service. Don't wait. Check out guardianvets.com now. You've heard me talk about the opportunity in urgent care. So VetCheck believes in the power of your capacity to influence your patients, patient families, and be a leader in your community. How they do this is by giving you the freedom to take ownership of your future to make the biggest impact in your patients' lives. They equip you with a turnkey opportunity to take action on the dream through a unique pathway to owning your own VetCheck Pet Urgent Care Center franchise. They provide a solution to remove obstacles like competing against corporate dollars in the community that you want to be in and having access to hospital ownership, medical directorship, and more. Also, you become a partner along the journey. A vet check pet urgent care center franchise is the answer. If you're interested, check out episode number 80, where I talked to Dr. Siva and he shares more about his story and the opportunity. So if this sounds like something that's interesting to you, reach out and learn how you can own your own vet check pet urgent care center franchise today by visiting vetcheckforpets.com, which again is vetcheckforpets.com. All right. So to introduce Paul, first, if you're on LinkedIn and not into veterinary medicine at all, you have seen his posts, friendly, poking, straightforward, no BS style. Certainly what stood out to me, which is what has made this podcast a long time coming, finally getting it done, which is great. And he is a former Marine and worked his way into the veterinarian world, working for one of the corporate offerings, growing their talent pool, and then kind of said, hey, 2020 rolled around. I want to do something different. I want to be able to do my own thing. And has certainly been on a mission to end the non-compete in veterinary medicine. and. With that, I'm excited to jump into a lot of different topics. And Paul, thank you so much for being here. I appreciate you having me, Isaiah. I'm looking forward to this. Absolutely. So let's cover a little bit of background just to set the stage for, hey, why is Paul qualified to chat on this stuff? Why is he so dialed into this one specific issue? Why does it matter? And I think the best thing is for some people that are probably like, why doesn't he just go away? Like he keeps messaging on my, my post and saying stuff and it's driving me nuts. But so let's just get a little bit of background and talk about kind of how did you end up working in the vet med space as a former Marine? I got into the recruiting space a couple of years after getting out of the Marine Corps. It kind of just fell in my lap, to be honest with you. It's one of those filler situations we hear about where people think their life is going to go in one direction and it goes in a completely different direction. So I spent the better part of 20 some odd years in the recruiting space, several different industries. Most recent industries were human healthcare and then veterinary medicine. So I was working for a large family practice medical group in Los Angeles, spent a few years with them. And then I got the call from a recruiter who was sourcing for a vice president um, of DVM recruiting for one of the country's biggest veterinary medical groups. And to me, it was the first time in my life that I had ever been able to combine two of my passions, which is leading recruiting teams and animals. 
So I thought it was a great opportunity and I took it. And that was my first introduction to the veterinary world. Perfect. And one other kind of just terms and definitions that I think would be helpful to get out of the way is the idea of non-competes and non-solicit, because I think sometimes Uh, those can be conflated. So let's unpack both of those and then we can kind of dive into some of the other pieces. Yeah, absolutely. And the non-solicit is something I absolutely have no problem with whatsoever. So the non-solicit is generally a clause that you'll find in an employment contract, which states that if you are to leave that current employer, you promise not to actively go after their clients or employees, right? So you're not going to actively solicit those people to follow you wherever you go, okay? And that clause, relatively standard in most employment contracts, or at least in the veterinary space and human healthcare space, but I agree with that one. I have no problem with that whatsoever. Now, the non-compete says that you are not going to work for another employer within a certain radius for a specific period of time. And that is the one that I do have the problem with. Now, non-competes have already been deemed unethical in the human healthcare space, um, primarily because of its impact on access to care for individuals. And we all know right now, the biggest hot topic in veterinary medicine is the veterinary shortage, right? And as you peel that onion back, what is the veterinary shortage actually cause it causes a problem with access to care for people like me and you right so this non-compete clause is just it's very detrimental to well veterinarians specifically and i think the industry as a whole primarily because let's look at it from the veterinarian's point of view i'm a new veterinarian just graduated school a couple years ago let's say i relocate to a major city right i grew up in a rural area i'm really excited I now live in this big city for the first time, got my new job. You know, I'm a new doctor. Maybe he or she's starting a family, right? They pick a nice little community, start to lay roots down. And all of a sudden, they start to realize that those promises that were made in the interview process, right? The promises that were made in the phone calls and all the shiny new equipment that I saw during my interview was really just old equipment that was polished. And those promises, they're really not being fulfilled. And for whatever reason, good or bad, let's say the environment just changes. And I realize that I'm no longer a fit here. And then I realize, wait a second, I signed this non-compete. So that means, oh, 10 miles. I didn't think 10 miles was a big deal. But now that I'm looking at resigning, the practice owner reminds me that it's 10 miles as the crow flies which means it covers the entire metropolitan area that I live in. So in order for me to find a new job, I've got a major life decision to make. I could either not work for the one or two years, right? In which case that would be very detrimental to me as a doctor, or I could uproot everything I know, all my family and move to another town, thereby not just impacting my life, but the the lives of other people in my family. Or the other option is to take a long commute. Right. And in which case, maybe that commute prevents me from being able to pick up my child from daycare or being able to do other things with my family, whatever the case is. But these are all extreme decisions that a veterinarian is going to have to make just to find another job. And it makes absolutely no sense to me. So that's one of the reasons why I'm strongly advocating to end this practice. It's simply in today's day and age, the non compete is nothing more than a mechanism for control and greed. That is all it is. There is zero benefit to the veterinarian. And to be honest with you, employers that require non-competes, essentially what they're saying is, 
I would rather you be unhappy with me than you working somewhere else. I'd rather see you unhappy with me than see you working for somebody else. That's what a non-compete says. Do you think that non-competes help with retention at all? And how do we think about the idea of like talent retention and then like that responsibility? Do you view like the non-compete as the get out of jail free card for maybe not having a good culture and you can just retain people because they literally can't go work? Well, if you think that an effective means means of employee retention is by chaining them to a post, then yeah, it's very effective. But that's not how you retain employees. So no, I don't think it's a good mechanism to retain employees. The best way to retain employees is to ask them if they are happy and if they are not, work towards making them happy, right? Challenge them, provide them with challenging opportunities, make sure they're well-paid, make sure that they're well-respected and trusted, right? That's how you retain employees. It's really relatively simple, but creating a contractual obligation to stay here, whether you want to or not, that's not called employee retention. So the pushbacks that I've heard, and I know you've seen a bunch of them, and I know this is always the fun game that you get to play of like, all right, bring it on. Let's talk for and hear these good reasons, right? I love it. Why why not? Biggest one that I hear is the one that, hey, I'm looking to sell my business non-competes, making sure that this team is still in place, increases the value. I took the entrepreneurial risk. I did all these different things. I've given them a job. How is that a bad thing? How would you respond to that? I believe we stopped selling people a little over 150 years ago. That's number one. Okay. So, and I get that perspective, right? Where, hey, I'm going to sell my practice to one of these big corporates, right? And I'm fully staffed, so that's going to be very attractive, and I need to stay fully staffed. Otherwise, the price of my hospital is going to decrease. Well, first of all, from my point of view, whether or not you stay fully staffed is completely under your control. It's all about how you handle that sale, how you interact with your employees. So if you want to retain them, number one, you should be involving them in these types of decisions, right? So if I work for you, Isaiah, I chose work for you because of what you offered me, the environment you created, right? So I chose to be with you. Now, I understand that a couple of years you may want to sell, but if that's a complete surprise to me, if you just wake up one day and say, hey, I'm selling to any of these major corporations, and let's say, what if it's a major corporation that I worked for in the past that I had a very bad experience with? Are you going to expect me to stay in that environment again? No, I don't see how that's fair. But the other side of that token is, In order to get through that transaction while retaining the majority of your team, or at least retaining them in a very positive fashion, you need to involve them. Everybody likes to say, oh, we're a family here, right? We're a family at this hospital, we're a family at this clinic. But when it comes time to sale, I'm out, forget it. I didn't tell you guys anything, the paperwork signed, you not work for them, see you later, right? What happened to that family environment? Families discuss these types of decisions. So as a practice owner, if you want to retain those people through that sale, number one, respect them enough to involve them in the decision, let them know what's going on, reward them for their loyalty, right? If you're going to sale for 10x multiple, you're going to make a, a good chunk of change on it. Make sure that they're included in that. Reward them in some fashion. Entice them to stay with the new employer, but don't force them. Because like I said, there may be a couple of those folks that already worked for that employer and had bad experiences. And now you're going to just transition one contract right over to another employer and make them accountable to that. It just doesn't make sense. 
the people aren't what you're selling. You're selling the business, you're selling the practice, you're selling what's inside that building, possibly your client list, right? Because they're most likely going to stay. You know, that's another piece. There's no guarantee that the clients are going to stay when it transitions to a new name, right? Which is one of those things those aggregators like to do. Some of them don't like putting their names on those buildings. They'll tell you, hey, you know what? You're going to get to keep your name or you get to keep your culture. We're not going to interfere with how you practice medicine. And it usually stays like that for the first year or two, right? And once the dust settles, boom, everything changes. But at the end of the day, there's no guarantees in business. So the tying of people to these to the transactions just sense to me. Yeah. And the other one that I saw on LinkedIn, and it's been fairly recent. So we had originally tried to schedule a kind of debate structure for this episode, which again, didn't get to happen for a variety of reasons. But with that being said, there was a <laughs> doctor on LinkedIn and I think he pushed back on you and I'm just going to read it and it's a little bit long and then we can kind of chat through it. He goes, how can non-competes be completely unnecessary? I have one other doctor that I've opened my practice base to for over two years. We have helped to develop a positive relationship for him with clients with no non-competes. He could conceivably leave my practice, go across the street, begin to see the very clients that have worked hard to have him accept or have them accept him. Then my staff salaries become at risk due to the drop in income lost to the new clinic, or they get stolen from me to go work for him. Now I'm short-staffed, workload goes up, fixed costs go on. So now I'm working in the red. The doctor wants to leave in the shortage. They just need to move out of my catchment area and I will struggle to find veterinarians. Non-competes have nothing to do with overall veterinary shortage. It is a supply and demand issue, not a non-compete issue. And I know we talked a little bit about the shortage in your thoughts there, but I have some thoughts on that one, but I, I don't want to interject. So have at it. Let me go get my tissues to clear these tears, right? Because, okay. I mean, that just sounds like a whole lot of crying from somebody who wants to take no accountability for their own actions. Now, first of all, if I remember, you know, if I if I misstate this incorrectly, you know, fix it for me. But it sounds like it's a two-doctor practice, right? Right. So in that case, wow, you're putting a lot on the shoulders of just two people. And at any given time, you're right. That one doctor can leave and do that. But here's the thing. In those types of situations, even if that one doctor were to leave, right, and go across the street, if you as the business owner didn't take any actions to create a more holistic client experience to build loyalty to your brand, that is on you. If it is that easy for me to leave and take a bunch of your clients with me without soliciting, remember? Let's just assume that the non-solicit is in effect, and I am not going to violate that. If just by moving across the street, I can take 50% of your clients, well, then you didn't do enough to retain them and build loyalty to your brand, okay? And that is the nature of competition. I could be that other doctor in your hospital and move to the other side of the country, right? And while you're sitting there struggling, because in that email, you just talked about supply and demand and the shortage, right? While you're struggling to find another doctor, another doctor can open that practice across the street and still take 50% of your clients because you as a single doctor can only see so many. Okay, so this argument is just, it makes no sense to me. And as a matter of fact, if I were in that situation where I was, my business relied on one other person, I would make sure that my clients knew how important they were to this building, to this practice, to my brand. I would make sure they knew that so that no matter what happened, I built a sense of loyalty to my brand. 
now, if there was any risk of this doctor leaving, let's say it was me and you, Isaiah, two doctors in this one practice, right? I owned it for 10 years. You came on the new go-getter, right? Uh, fresh out of school. And I recognized, wow, this guy's a hustler. This guy's going places. Well, you know what? Why don't you start encouraging that behavior instead of being afraid of it? Maybe now by doing that, you build a stronger relationship with that other doctor. And if he or she decides to leave, guess what they're going to do? Just like in my first example, because you built a family environment there, right? They're going to talk to you about it. And they're going to say, hey, you know what, Dr. Diaz? I, I'm thinking of opening my own practice. What do you think? Well, hell yeah. I think you'd be great, right? Now, let me help you avoid some of the mistakes I made. Oh, and by the way, if you go and open across the street, that'd be great. Maybe the two of us can bring in new blood. And then when I need to take a day off, we can help each other. And now maybe I'll even invest in you. So instead of owning one practice, now I own 1.5, right? So there's positive ways of doing this. Everybody focuses on the negative, right? Everybody focuses on the fact that, hey, a veterinarian is going to come in. They're going to make relationships with all my clients and then open a shop next door. Well, give me a break. First of all, the only way I'm going to open a successful business next door is if there's enough business in that area to sustain both of us. It makes no sense for me to go and open a business next door if there's not that many pet parents in the area to begin with. But if there are, and our current two-doctor practice has a waiting list where patients are waiting three, four, five weeks, well, then maybe another practice is beneficial to that community, and it makes sense, right? So that excuse, gosh, all I heard was crying and zero accountability for what are you doing to retain your clients? Instead of sitting here saying, hey, you know what? I'm going to make you sign a non-compete so that if you come and work for me and decide to leave, oh, get out of town, right? Get out of town. You can't work here. The other fallacy behind that notion is you think as that one practice in that community with all this business that you're doing a great thing, right? And because you're that one practice in that community, you started getting lazy and didn't take those actions to create that client experience, to build that brand loyalty. And why not? Because you didn't have to. The people in that community didn't have another choice, but now they do. Now they have another choice and you're worried. And now you're gonna cry about this other doctor leaving and start his own practice. Oh my God, oh, so bad. No, that's called capitalism. That's what we do, we compete. And if you don't take enough actions to compete at the same level as me, well, guess what? You're gonna lose. And that's business at the end of the day. So those excuses, they just make no sense to me. I hope I, I explained that. Yeah, yeah, no, 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 no. I mean, I totally see it the same way. And I think the biggest thing that stuck out to me and part of the reason why I wanted to get the non-compete, non-solicit was actually for that question. And I think it solves it. It's like, if there's a non-solicit and you, yeah, aren't good at what you do and people say, hey, the offering across the street is better, faster, cheaper, and it's a better experience. Great. Good for them. And they're going to leave. And also it's this idea of like this scarcity versus abundance mindset, right? Like this, oh, there's not enough for everybody. So we got to protect everything that we have. And I don't know why that defensive nature is there versus saying, hey, I think I'm good at what I do. Good doctor, highly qualified. Yeah, let's go compete. That's an excellent point, I'd say. And here's the other aspect of it. If the veterinary shortage is so real and everybody's so afraid of it, right? So I've got to have a non-compete to keep you here. Let's think about that logic for a second. If I'm going to leave and go and open another practice, 
isn't the veterinary shortage going to prevent me from hiring somebody that I'm going to need to help me with that practice? Right. So I'm going to be in the same. Why would I go and open that practice if I'm going to be in the same boat? It just doesn't make sense. You know, it's just everybody wants to focus on these arbitrary examples that have been used for decades. I feel like nobody's ever challenged it. And you know what? Let's tell your audience, Isaiah, how long we tried to find somebody willing to come on your podcast to support the non-compete and, and have an open debate with me. Months, right? We've yeah, been trying been to do that for months. Quarter, quarter plus. <laughs> Easily. And yeah. nobody has, no takers, right? So everybody, all these folks want the non-compete. They want the non-compete, but they're not willing to talk about it and defend it. And if anybody listening to follows me on LinkedIn, you'll see how I am clear and direct with a lot of these major employers. I will tag the company's name. I will tag their executives and I'll ask them very specific questions. And they all ignore any conversation about a non-compete. So why is that? Why, why am I willing to come on here and take this stance and, and openly talk about it, right? Openly talk about ending it, right? And why I believe it should be ended. But nobody, not a single person will come and talk about defending it and why they need it or why it's necessary. Why is a non-compete good for a veterinarian? Why won't anybody come and talk to me? The executives at the, I mean, senior executives, I'm talking presidents, CEOs of these companies, ignore completely. And that's because Isaiah, at least in my mind, at least until somebody comes and proves me wrong, they're ignoring it because they know it's wrong. They know they have nothing to win by debating me on this topic. They're hoping that I just go away. But at the end of the day, I've been saying this repeatedly, I know that nobody's going to change their non-compete practice because Paul Diaz is making a lot of noise about it, right? They will continue to ignore me, but it's not them that I'm really trying to get in front of. It's the veterinarians. It's those individual doctors all over this country who dedicated their life to this industry, right? Who are generally non-confrontational, extremely compassionate people, right? They do the very best they can for these patients. But at the end of the day, they don't recognize exactly how much power they have in this industry. And those are the ones that I'm trying to get to. Those are the ones I'm trying to influence and tell them, hey, you have so much power. Like, as soon as you stand up and make your voice heard, your voice cannot be ignored. They can continue to ignore me all day long. But once these veterinarians organize and they realize how much power they have, they'll get what they want. That's when the change will occur. That's what I'm trying to do. I'm really trying to show these veterinarians how, hey, you know what? Let me ask the hard questions that you don't want to. That's fine. But pay attention to how it's received. Pay attention to how they ignore it. That's the response, right? Their silence is deafening, man. It truly is. So I'm hoping that through these messages, through these podcasts, through these posts, that these veterinarians start seeing a pattern where, hey, Paul Diaz is saying things that make sense to me as a veterinarian. I would like to see this answer, and he's not getting it. That's an indicator of a problem. But once these, like I said, once these veterinarians organize and, you know, they finally start voicing these demands or these voicing their needs, then the industry will change. And those corporations that ignored me, they're going to be on the wrong side of history. Because Isaiah, I truly believe with everything that's going on in this country right now around non-competes, especially at the executive presidential levels right now, I do think that this thing is going to end. And those companies, when it happens, <laughs> this is where you and I are going to get a laugh one day 
because we're going to start seeing them posting about non-competes and they're going to say, hey, we've been seriously considering ending our non-compete and we think now's the time. And everybody's going to know it's bullshit. But you know what? At the end of the day, who cares? I'm not out for the credit or the recognition. I just want the result. Yeah, I love that. (laughs) One other thing that I think is important for people to listen is share a little bit about higher power in the way that you've structured your business as well. Because again, I think you have to eat your own cooking. You have to practice what you preach. And the adjustment that you made internally to say, hey, team, this is what's going on. This is what the change is. This is what we believe in. You share that or are you willing to share that? Yeah, no, absolutely. So, and you know, let me give a little bit of history behind how I even got here. What I want folks to recognize is that I've worked the majority of my life in California where there are no non-competes. So it was never an issue, right? I mean, I knew about them, but it was never an issue to me. And in my role as the vice president of DVM recruiting, I wasn't talking to individual doctors. You know, my team was doing that the majority of the time. So it's not like I was hearing stories of how non-competes negatively impacted the doctors, not until I decided to start my own company. That's when I started having those individual conversations, right? And even so, in the beginning, I'll just be really candid, Isaiah, I didn't think much of it. Like everybody else, I just thought it was a normal business practice. Hey, non-competes, that's what they have in the veterinary industry, fine. But then through these individual conversations where I'm starting to hear like these very emotional stories of the impact, the toll that these non-competes are having on veterinarians and their families, that's when it started really piquing my interest. And it was this one story that I almost alluded to in the beginning of the podcast, this one story of a veterinarian who was in a very toxic work environment. She was relatively new grad, right? She just one, two, three years experience. Some the promises weren't kept. The environment changed, very toxic for her. And she reached out to me because a friend asked her to, because I had helped one of her friends with another contractual problem. I think I was like maybe a third or fourth call she had made. She was at the end of a rope and she's telling me her story and it crushed me, Isaiah. Like it just broke me. And at the end, when she got finished speaking to me, I asked her, I said, so like, how are you dealing with this today? Like, what are you doing? Like, how do you get through the workday? And she said, well, Paul, I go to work every day and I give my patients the best care I possibly can. And I just suffer in silence. And that's what did it. That's what made me decide that I needed to do something about this non-compete. At least I needed to try, right? And immediately that same week, I made an announcement that my company would no longer work with practices that required veterinarians to sign a non-compete. We would no longer support them. So my client list went from close to 2,000. I mean, I had 1,500. Yeah, so close to 2,000 practices down to double digits in the blink of an eye. And I was okay with that. And you know what didn't happen to me? The people working for me, none of them left. And you know why? It's because I involved them in that decision, Isaiah. I told them what I was doing. I told them about her story. And I told them that, hey, you know what? We have an opportunity to make a difference here. And yeah, it's going to hit us. It's going to bite us in the butts for a little bit. But I'm willing to bet it's going to come back. And they all stuck with me. And we all took that hit together. And we're coming back just fine. You know, just like I, you know, I saw it coming. I knew exactly what was going to end up happening. Yeah, we took that dip, but we're climbing our way out of that hole. And at the end of the day, we all feel good about it. That's the most important thing. So when she said those words, and that's why if you follow me on LinkedIn, you'll see the article I wrote or the, yeah, the article that I wrote 
it's titled Suffer in Silence. And it's about her. It's a heart-wrenching story. It, like I said, really did impact me significantly. And luckily I was able to get her out of that environment. And guess what her practice owner really wanted? Mm, I don't know. Money. That was it. That's all it boiled down to. He was willing to impact her mental health, impact her ability to earn, impact her ability to choose who she worked for, impact the lives of her family, right? He was willing to do all that. And all he wanted was money. So I made a call to him, got to the root of the problem, offered him a buyout. He started at 20. I went to 10. We ended up on 15. The new practice that I introduced her to, right? They were willing to give her a sign-on bonus. I told them what was going on. And they flat out told me, say, Paul, you know what? We'll give $15,000 so she could pay it off. But the problem is we can't do that and pay for your fee. So that was a no-brainer. They got her for free. I waived my fee. She is now happy, thriving. She didn't have to move. And everything worked out. I love that. That's awesome. That's the way to do business, man. Yeah. Well, I think what it is, it's a positioning for the long game versus the short game. Absolutely. What we're doing here is we're going to build brand equity, a reputation. We're going to be the right side of history. And when people reflect and let all the chips fall, they're going to say, hey, you know what? This is a high quality organization that's doing things the right way. And that's when I'm looking, that's what I'm going to go to, right? This is who I want to align myself with. This is where my brand fits best. I think that's really cool. What about employment contracts in general? What are the best ones you see? What are the worst ones you see? Obviously, the ones with non-competes, uh, as we're talking about. But if you think about, hey, this is the way that the best employment contracts look, and this is kind of high level, your thoughts on that, as you see lots of them. You know, for the most part, most of these contracts are relatively boilerplate. I've seen a few where the owners did get creative. Off the top of my head, one of the best contracts I saw, number one, didn't have a non-compete but also it clearly outlined an incentive for the veterinarian, right? At different anniversaries. So, and what I mean by that is most contracts will say, Hey, you know what, we're going to give you, here's your base pay. Here's your productivity. We'll give you this for a sign on bonus. And here's some money for relocation. Oh, and let's not forget to talk about clawbacks. That'll be a different topic, but so that's pretty much the standard terms. But I did have this one practice owner who had all that, but also outlined, hey, you know what? At year three, as long as you meet these basic metrics, right? At year three, this is what you're going to receive. It was a monetary bonus, right? And the employee could choose between, hey, receiving that, receiving that bonus directly, having it paid towards their student debt, or splitting it however they want it. Right. So they had that flexibility and the practice owner did have a, this was one of the things I always check because a lot of times employers will say, Hey, a student loan reimbursement. And it really isn't a true reimbursement. It's simply an additional payment to the doctor, which is taxed at the regular bonus rate and really has minimal impact on their student loan. So I did check with him and he did have a partnership with one of those third party companies that facilitate that. So the payment did go directly to the lender to minimize the principal balance owed. So I was like, okay, this is good. It's not smoke and mirrors here. But he essentially outlined the first 10 years of this veterinarian's career, if you stay with me. Oh, and by the way, there were clauses in there where these are going to be our check-in periods. 
And if you're not on, if you're not on track to meet this goal, I will help provide you the mentorship and guidance you need, and we'll make sure. Basically, what he was doing is saying, "Look, here's what you could potentially earn over the first ten years, right? Oh, and if by the way, there's something going on where you look like where it looks like you're not going to meet it, I'm going to help you get there. Oh, and by the way." I don't think anybody's ever left his employment. Like he's he's got like the best retention rate I've ever heard. If anything, it's just been retirement or family leaves type stuff, things like that. But that had to have been the best contract I saw where he clearly outlined. And basically what I call it is a, um, that's a retention program, right? Because now I see what I need to do. It's clear what I need to do, what I'm going to get and deal. So yeah, that was one of the best, one of the worst. If I see a contract that's more than, six pages, six, seven pages, I know there's going to be a bunch of problems in there, right? And one of the biggest ones that they sneak in is that the clawback agreement. Now, I don't have a problem with clawbacks as long as they're prorated. And what I'm seeing with new grads, ever since I spoke at the VBMA's national meeting last year, I've been getting a lot of interaction with new graduates and they're sending me their contracts to review. And I do this for them free of charge whether they take a job with me or not, I don't care. I just want to provide the service. And what I'm seeing is employers are slipping in these clawback agreements where, hey, if you leave within the first 12 months, right, we'll give you a $10,000 sign-on bonus. If you leave within the first 12 months, you have to pay it all back. And you know what? Okay. In the mind of most people, that's prudent, right? Hey, all right, you're going to give me 10 grand up front. If I leave in a year, I'll pay it back to you. But think about that. If the work environment turns so toxic that I need to leave in the first year and I resign on the 11th month, I'm going to have to pay back $10,000. Now, tell me a new grad that has a $10,000 just floating around that they can give, right? And here's the kicker. That $10,000 sign-on bonus you gave me, I really only saw about 5,400 of it, right? 5,400, maybe somewhere around there. That's what went into my pocket. I'm going to cut you a check for 10,000. Come on now. So every time I see those, I have my clients, I have my candidates push back and ask to have that prorated. So if it's, it's a one-year clawback, then, hey, prorated by, you know, divided by 12. If it's 24, divided by 24, whatever the case is. But I prefer to see prorated clawbacks. So if I resign at that 11th month, great, I owe you change. I mean, it makes logical sense. And have you seen success? With pushing back again, going back to how competitive it is, right? I think that's one of the things, especially as a younger veterinarian, it's like, okay, there's a way to respectfully push back on certain things and not say like, hey, I'm here, like you need me so bad, you're going to bend over backwards, do whatever you want. I think there's, you want to avoid that arrogance, but at the same point, you want it to be fair for everyone involved. Like I'll show up, give you my best. I need, you know, terms that are going to make sense on my end. So I love that. I have not seen of every candidate that I've recommended that pushback, every single one of them got that clause changed. And the better thing is, is that a lot of times I'll get a candidate who wants to work, I don't know, some, some very rural area or wherever. It doesn't even matter, right? Anywhere in this country. I call a hospital in that area where they want to work. My first question is, hey, I've got a candidate who's very interested in your hospital, but I need to know, do you have a non-compete? And when they say yes, I'm like, all right, well, you know what? Unfortunately, I'll be, I'm unable to place this candidate there. We only support hospitals that don't have non-competes. All of a sudden, they don't have a non-compete. It's just that easy. And that has happened to me several times, which tells me the non-compete isn't important to these practice owners. It's just what they've been doing since they've been doing it, right? 
It's how they know to run the business. And I'm here to say that it's just not necessary. You know what? You can still retain that doctor. You can keep that doctor for the next 20 years if you challenge them, pay them well, respect them. I mean, it's so basic. Well-paid, well-treated, well-respected employees stay. Be a place that people want to come work. Yeah. And I've heard examples of folks that are turning people away in a world that, where people can't find help because they are employer of choice, which is cool. Yeah, that's the type of employer I want. What is a topic, thought, anything, non-competes or just recruiting in general that maybe I haven't asked about that you feel like is important to, to kind of get out there? Uh, good question, Isaiah. Well, I do think the entire recruiting industry is in for a big wake-up call here relatively soon. And this is something that we can probably even do on another podcast. But a lot of folks think that the veterinary shortage is the number one reason that there is such a difficult time recruiting in the veterinary industry. But I don't necessarily believe that. And understand, I've been doing this for over 20 years now. Without trying to sound arrogant, Isaiah, I do know the business of recruiting. And it's a legacy industry. It's a legacy industry that's been relatively overlooked by today's technology. It's, you know, we are an on-demand society. Things move fast in today's society, much faster than it did prior to the internet. But yet the recruiting process itself has not evolved. It is still very time-consuming. It doesn't respect the fact that these skilled talent professionals value their personal time. And I see all of that as an opportunity. And I'm working towards bringing something to this marketplace that, number one, will respect the personal time of these professionals, will enhance the user experience, not just for employers, but for candidates as well, and adds value for both parties. So I'm hoping that I'll be able to announce something next year on that. But I do think that Again, this is an industry where everybody has done it the same way because it's the only way we've ever done it. And whenever I take a new job somewhere, Isaiah, and I'm learning about how things operate and somebody says that to me, boom, that's the number one thing I'm changing. That's the first thing on my list to change, right? Because that tells me that nobody's ever looked to improve it, right? And the recruiting process itself is one of those. Everybody's just accepted that in order for me to find out what my value is, what my personal value in this marketplace is, I have to give you, the employer, all my personal time up front. Right? I have to fill out your application. I have to do your phone calls. I have to do all your interviews so that at the very end, you can make me an offer, basically establishing what I'm worth to you. And if it doesn't align with the professional value I place on myself and I decline, well, all that time I gave you is just wasted. I don't get it back. And then I have to do it over and over and over until I find somebody that values me the way I value myself. Well, that to me, like I said, is an opportunity and I'm aiming to change that. I love it. Yeah. Open invite to come back and chat more on that. Very oh, absolutely on uh, being able to kind of walk through the changes there. I think this one, since we chatted a little bit, is something that maybe you'll have a different question. But one question you want to ask me that you can ask, nothing off limits, feel free to fire away. It can be off topic, on topic, anything What's on your mind? Yeah, one of the things that has interested me about you, and I follow you on LinkedIn as well, you post a lot of things about investment opportunities and the stock market and things like that. And what really caught my attention was, gosh, how did this guy 
transition or how are you integrating your, I'm assuming primary work, which is on the investment side with veterinary medicine? Like how did you bridge that gap personally? Because to me, it's really interesting, especially because I find so many young veterinarians that simply don't have even basic savings. So I think what you're doing and the messages you communicate, it's providing an incredible service and that gap. How did you figure that out? How did you make that happen? I think the short answer is dumb luck. Sometimes it's better to be lucky. There you go. But the longer story is just people in my life that I saw needed help and it was more in the dental field. But as I built out professional partners, there was folks that were like, hey, what about vet med? And yeah, like my day job is much more around that, like financial planning kind of wealth management piece. But I'm a huge proponent of, hey, equity ownership, having some skin in the game, finding a way, whether it is through a corporate offering and having stock comp or having some tether to that on top of making good money from salary production, pro sale, whatever. And then, yeah, I mean, if you follow me on LinkedIn, you know, and anyone listening to this podcast knows it's no secret. I think the you know financial innovation right? The biggest thing that's happening is around Bitcoin. And I talk about that because it's just better money. Yeah. And so when you think about like boiling it down, like what is money? And veterinarians can kind of get frustrated or ticked off like, hey, my human health peers make so much more money and compensated this way. And sure, there's differences. And I've always come back to, hey, you can do these things from a financial planning perspective across the board to be in a good place. And then you can also just save better than your peers. And guess what? You can get to the point where work is optional. You have flexibility, you have options sooner in life than maybe what they will. And so many different things just boil back down to what are you solving for? And then just aligning how you want to spend or save your money alongside that. And so for me, what I saw was there's a blue ocean of opportunity where there's a lot of people that have insurance-based byproducts and we will give you financial advice or some version of that in vet med. And not a lot of people saying, hey, let's talk about like what you want to do. And then let's like complement that with good planning and other conversations. But yeah, I love having the conversation around, okay, you're a business owner or you want to become a business owner. That's your biggest asset. So personal, professional advice and guidance around that idea makes total sense. And there's not, I feel like enough people doing that. And there are some other really amazing advisors that I have enjoyed getting to know that are trying to do good work as well. And so it's trying to highlight, hey, if you need help, there's good people out there trying to do things the right way. So it's, yeah, again, for me, sometimes it's just better to be lucky than good. And uh, I feel very fortunate to, to kind of found it. So similar to you, where you're like, kind of stumble into it. It's like, well, it's not some grand scheme of like, hey, there's this path I'm going to go. It just kind of developed as, as we go through. So excellent. Well, Isaiah, I really do appreciate this. Absolutely. So outside of LinkedIn, I know we plugged that a couple of times. And you have to, because even I have, to. I have to follow. Sometimes I just get a good chuckle. I love that. I'm just like, he's at it again. And they're not going to reply because I know that every time. It's like they will never engage. It's just like this. I would love to hear the internal messaging around, hey, Paul messaged again or made this comment. What do we do? And this is like, yeah, well, ignore, ignore. Yeah. <laughs> you know, uh, it's funny you brought that up because the president of one of the major veterinary employers has already blocked me. So he doesn't even want to see these comments anymore. Yeah. yeah. And that I'm sure that'll continue to happen. But like I said, their silence is deafening. And a lot of folks, I've had some feedback where people are like, oh man, your messaging is aggressive, right? I think you called it friendly poking, but at the end of the day, what you're not seeing is the behind the scenes efforts where I've messaged these folks privately and try to open a dialogue, right? Ignored, or worse than that, 
they just try to placate me with non-answers and that's just not going to work. See, that would work in their normal environment to their normal audience, but it just doesn't work with me. And generally, my belief is that clear, direct communication appears to be aggressive in an environment where others are accustomed to being indirect and passive. Those two things, I am neither. I can be very professional, but I will also be very direct when I'm passionate about something. So I just hope folks don't confuse that because all I'm really trying to do is start a conversation. And to be honest with you, I know, I know for a fact, Isaiah, that those executives who are ignoring me today, they all know I'm right. They just don't want to say it. And one day, one day, I hope that one of them wakes up and reaches out and says, hey, Paula, let's do this. Because if I can just get one of those major corporations to jump on board with this, number one, for that period of time, they will have a significant advantage in hiring doctors. But number two, they will be the initiator of this change in this industry. Everybody else will follow suit. So, you know, I'm just hoping for that day. I'm hoping that day comes. But if it doesn't, I'm not going to wait for it. So that's why I'm going to continue to try to educate veterinarians and empower them to stand up and ask for what they want. Because once they do, they will get it. The veterinary industry is one of the few where the majority of the revenue is generated off the backs of one job classification. And that's the veterinarian. Absolutely. Yeah. The crack in the dam, once it happens, there's no going back like that. No is going done. back. It is yeah. toast. And yeah, if I'm, if I'm a bigger corporate, maybe I'm not the first to move, but if I'm mid-tier and I'm like, Hey, I'm trying to make a splash. Why not? Why would I not do that to go get a little bit of an advantage? And then I can play that theme for a long time that we were first, even if, you know, everyone else does it as well. Say, Hey, you know what? We were moving first. Cause we actually do care. We are a family, like all the things we talked about. Right. Well, and that to me is something that I will be shocked if it's not, I should put that in my guesses for 2023. I think one will, I think in 2023, one will. I sure hope so. You know, and the folks that are leading the way right now, like small door veterinary out of New York, you got galaxy vet, you got veg out of New York, rare breed. Those folks are running very successful practices. They don't require non-competes, right? So if they can do it, the rest of you can do it, mm-hmm. you know, and there is another small group called uh, easy vet EASY. I know there's a EZ vet, but EASY vet. They were an organization that I reached out to. I met with them personally. They invited me out. We had really good conversations. And they ended up making an announcement that because of my work, they ended their non-competes. So I was really proud of that. And I'm really proud awesome. of them as well. And I do believe that organization is also leading the way in this uh, for this change. So more and more will come. It's going to take time. But at the end of the day, none of this works without the support of the veterinarian. So I hope there's a few of you out there listening and you believe in me and you believe in what we're trying to do and you support this, make your voice heard. And lastly, before I forget, www.change.org forward slash end the veterinary non-compete. That is the petition I started just a few months ago. We're up over 5,000 right now. We're averaging over a thousand signatures a month. Please if uh, take a minute, go there, sign that. That's one way to make your voice heard. It'll be in the show notes as well. So just head over either to the website or whatever podcast player you're in, hit the hyperlink and you can go right there. But for those that want to touch base with you, find maybe an employer that is not non-competes. Like how does that work? How do they reach out to you? How do they connect? Either LinkedIn is one way. It's easy to find me there or paul.diaz, that's D-I-A-Z at 
higherpower.com and that's h-i-r-e-p-o-w-e-r <laughs> perfect i will have all that in the show notes as well but thank you so much for the time this was a blast and look forward to uh chatting more into the future and hearing about some of the other updates isaiah i always appreciated what you've done for me you've been a huge supporter so thank you thank you for sharing this platform with me and uh yeah i look forward to talking to you again Thanks for listening to today's show. The comments made on today's show should not be taken as investment, tax, or legal advice. All comments are for educational purposes only. You should consult your team before implementing anything. Isaiah Douglas is a partner of Vincere Wealth Management. Isaiah is registered in the state of Indiana, California, Texas. The biggest compliment you can give to this podcast is to share it with a friend. Reviews help the show get found, and Apple Podcasts is the platform that predominantly is how people listen to the show. If you have three to five minutes, you like the show, please head over to Apple Podcasts, give us an honest rating and review. That'll help more people find the show. For all of today's links and information, head over to veterinariansuccesspodcast.com. There you can subscribe via your favorite podcast platform platform so you won't miss another episode. Finally, if you'd like more information, insights, and have the ability for your voice to be heard and interact with show guests, join the private Facebook group. You can go to the Veterinary Success Podcast on Facebook or head over to the veterinariansuccesspodcast.com. Scroll all the way to the bottom where it says about your host and then click on the Facebook icon. That'll bring you into the Facebook group. I'll approve you. You'll be in. And then I'd love to hear your questions, feedback, and anything that you'd like to see added to the show. So with all that, thank you so much for listening. I'll be talking again to you soon.